Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Graben. This is episode 439. It's February 9th, 2022. You're going to hear a lot more about him in a minute, but our guest today is Elliot Weiss. He is a professor emeritus of business administration at the Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. So to learn more about Elliot and to find links to everything we talk about in today's episode, you can look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 439. As always, thanks for listening. If this is your first time, please subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast app. Uh, again, our guest is Elliot Weiss, who's uh, the Oliver White Professor Emeritus of Business Administration. Uh, he teaches, or was, you're, you're, I'll say welcome, I'll, I'll read the rest of your bio. Um, you're, you're now retired, so past tense, taught? Yes, although I'm still teaching now and then. Oh, okay, well, good. So uh, has taught and uh, will we'll hopefully continue teaching students in the technology and operations management area at the Darden Business School at the University of Virginia. Um, Elliot is the author of numerous articles in the areas of production and operations management. He has extensive consulting experience for both manufacturing and service companies in areas including production scheduling, workflow management, logistics, lean conversions, and total productive management. Um, Before coming to Darden in 1987, Elliot was on the faculty of the Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. Uh, He has a, a BS and a BA in math and economics an MS in operations research, an MBA, and a PhD, all from the University of Pennsylvania, correct? Yes, go Quakers. Yes, so um, PhD in operations research. So given all of the experiences and the teaching, there's there's a lot we could dig into today. Um, so Elliot, again, thank you. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Mark. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's an opportunity, as I ask a lot of guests, um, I'm, I'm curious to hear your origin story of, you know, why operations research was um, your, your choice of fields. And, and I see artifacts in your office related to lean. So I know that's important to you as well. So what, what's some of that origin story of how you got turned on to this whole field? Sure. Uh, again, Mark, thanks for having me today. Uh, way back when I was a math major undergrad at University of Pennsylvania, and uh, I hit a wall. I hit a wall in uh, a field called algebra. You know, up then I was good in math. I thought this is great. I just couldn't see it anymore. But I always loved to solve problems, and so I became more interested in applied math. Became in, interested in operations research. The idea here that I could take my mathematical and my problem-solving skills and work on them on interesting problems. So. I moved over into business school and got a degree in operations management. And then uh, uh, worked, actually started my work in healthcare way back when I did queuing models in healthcare for uh, uh, maternity wards, uh, looking at something called progressive patient care facilities. Uh, so I became interested in capacity planning. Eventually I became interested in lean because I'm always looking for better ways to do things. So can I do things quicker? Can I do them better? Can I do them cheaper? And uh, I I quote here, uh, 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 Bill Gates. Bill Gates talks about the two types of people, uh, uh, 
actually four types of people. You're either lazy or hardworking, you're smart or you're not smart. And he liked the lazy, smart people because they looked for ways to do things better, do things more efficiently. And I viewed myself as kind of a lazy, smart person. I don't, don't like to spend a lot of time on non-value added activities and on Muda, as we know. So as I learned more and more about lean, this idea of uh, waste reduction, my, my little sign behind me, lean is the relentless pursuit of, uh, I don't even have it memorized, the relentless pursuit of creating value through the strategic elimination of waste. So that's, that's for me. Let, let me look for ways to do that. Now, uh, I have four children, and uh, in a way, it's both a curse and a blessing, this, uh, this lean lens I have. Because I would all, when we're on vacation, we're out together, wherever, at a restaurant, at an amusement park, I always point out inefficiencies in them, things that uh, could, be, could be leaned out. And they, uh, they, of course, all roll their eyes whenever I do that. And uh, warm, warms the father's heart here. My daughter actually became an industrial engineer from the oh. University of Michigan. Uh-huh. And she now does what I do, even given all those uh, eye rolling. It's actually a lot of fun because she ends up teaching me now more than uh, I no longer teach her. Yeah. Well, there's... Um all sorts of process improvement opportunities in the world. And, and one thing I think we'll touch on later, you know, when we, you mentioned queuing models. So if you go to an amusement park, um, plenty of queues, sometimes those are, are masterfully managed. You go to different restaurants or grocery stores, you see all sorts of opportunities and questions around the structure of the queue and how could this be better? Yeah. It's a curse, so, right? <laughs> so in, in, in fact, uh, when I go to Disney World, or when you go to Disney World, Disneyland, you often can tell the age of an attraction by the type of queue that they have. So uh, one of the, the favorite uh, attractions for children, for kids, young kids, is the Dumbo ride, where you get to ride in this elephant that's going up and down and up and down. But it's a classic batch process, because what you have to do is it runs it stops. They let yeah. all the people off, <laughs> yeah. And then the next people get on. So it, it's this uh, this big setup time. So yeah, and you got to run in batches, and you wait forever. And the kids just love it. I I yeah. don't get it. But then uh, yeah. my favorite ride is a ride called Buzz Lightyear, and Buzz Lightyear is actually continuous flow through through the ride because the ride never stops. It's moving, and you get to sit in a seat. Uh, you get the seat, but when you get up, get up to the line, you get on a moving walkway. Your the walkway gets becomes the same speed as the ride. You sit on the ride, and then you do your ride. You shoot. Excuse me for, for being a little bit crazy here. And then you get up at the end of the ride. You stand up. There's a moving walkway. And you get off, and then there's a little buffer space uh, of empty seats for the next people to get on. So it never stops. There's no setup. Uh, uh, you get Disney likes that because Disney doesn't want you waiting in line. Yeah. They want you out in the park. So you're buying souvenirs and meals mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. And yeah. enjo- enjoying it. So, so uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful example for me of line management. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to think of, yeah, continuous flow in entertainment. Like I think of a, a traditional Ferris wheel, you know, would stop to let you off and let someone else on. 
And that, so then you know, the, the revolution is a little bit herky-jerky, where I don't know if you've had a chance to go to one of these newer, really large Ferris wheels, like the London Eye, or there's one in Las Vegas, there's one in Orlando, where it's it's really truly continuously revolving. And you know, you've got these big pods that um, are large enough and the speed is slow enough that unless somebody has um, accessibility, mobility issues, of course, they'll stop it if need be. But you know, it's it's like getting off of an elevator and getting back on an elevator where the uh, the attraction keeps going. So you'd think that would keep the line at least progressing and mm-hmm. moving moving along. So, um, but yeah, hopefully you don't get too frustrated and shake your fist at some of these attractions that aren't well designed. <laughs> no, no, no. I uh, I hope not. Well, and then just touch on one queuing theory. Um, idea. Let's see if I remember my queuing theory education right. Um, If you have a multi-server model, let's say a a fast food restaurant that's got four registers, four people taking orders, is it pretty universally more efficient to have one queue feeding all four servers as opposed to separate queues? Uh, Never say never and never say always. (laughs) Yes, for the the most part, that's true. Uh, And the idea is you're... uh, I could be technical. Uh, Please. Part of your audience, I'm sure, is technical. There's a central limit theorem going on here. So there's a reduction of variability by kind of pooling the resources. So uh, if you're like me and you go to the supermarket, uh, when, when you're in the supermarket, you always get behind the person who <laughs> is looking for their money or uh, uh, has a price check. Yeah. And meanwhile, the other lines are going faster. But here, by having the snake line, the people behind that are not as not affected because I could kind of skip skip uh, skip over them. Yeah, so, you, you yeah, do, that's you do your best. You do your best to choose the line that you think is going to move along, and sometimes it's that person with a few a smaller number of items in the cart that then ends up taking longer than the other line. But it, it, it's funny you see a mix sometimes. There's a group of grocery stores in Texas, um, Central Market. And the, the, the main registers have individual queues. The express checkouts have that single queue feeding into like eight express lines, which seems to make it even more expressy. So, so the reason, reason for that, Mark, is the following. Uh, and uh, I've never, although I've never been in a, uh, on an Army base or a Air Force Navy base in their PX, they actually have a single line all of the uh, supermarkets I'm told but but the key issue there is for that self-help one uh, the time for me to go from uh, the front of the line to the next one is short whereas with my cart mm. it's a long way to go to the next uh, the, the next uh, checkout counter and given the that the cart is three or four feet long, that single line going through, snaking through the supermarket uh, gives the impression of being uh, exceedingly long. Uh, I have another, another example uh, for you, though, of, of lean in the supermarket. Uh, and th- I use this for as an example for SMED, for a single-minute exchange of dye. And if I could plug my book at this time, uh, this <laughs> lean yeah. anthology is actually a, a story in, in that book as well. Uh, uh, so think of your, you're in the supermarket and you're behind a person. And the person in front, that person has just finished checking out. And the clerk says that's going to be $187.32. 
And at that point, the person in front of you takes out their checkbook and starts writing the check. So that the beginning of writing the check is a setup time, regardless of what the amount was. Uh, it takes the same amount of time and regardless of how, how big the uh, order was. So why can't I change that to an uh, external setup time? Mm -hmm. And I always get, sorry, I always get internal and external mixed up. The, the words aren't intuitive to me, but let me set it up while the, the clerk is running, uh, running mm -hmm. the, uh, checking through the items, then fill out the amount. So I've reduced the setup time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's correct. Yeah. The external, that would be external setup time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think in that scenario, but um, yeah, if, 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 so I try not to get in line behind someone who's writing a check because that does seem like <laughs> a slower um, cycle time, but yeah, I don't know. The store would almost have an interest in rounding if everyone was paying by check, you know, rounding the prices to uh, numbers that were easier to write out longhand, just mm -hmm. to write 100 instead of 104. I don't know, but they don't want to give away the $4. Never mind. Um, but <laughs> Uh, another example of that, uh, I have lots of examples of this. There's a, a uh, fast food restaurant chain in Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee called Pals Sudden Service, P-A-L apostrophe, yes, like friends. And what they do is when you pay, if you pay with cash, they have drive through only. If you give them coins, they don't even bother counting it. Mm. They just throw it in, you know, so if they're off a couple cents or whatever, it doesn't matter. And they, uh, the other thing that they do is they uh, take the order and they don't take payment when they take the order. They, they take payment when you uh, actually pick up the food and they'll have the coins ready for you that they think that they anticipate you'll need. Again, trying to reduce some of the cycle time. And they're so effective that they actually get a, a car through the drive through one every 17 seconds. Oh my gosh. Wow. That yeah. is sudden. <laughs> sudden <laughs> is. service. And, and the guy who runs it, he says, you know, we're not a, we're not a service business. We're a manufacturing business. Mm -hmm. So they have a limited menu. Uh, they have a, they've 5S, the, the uh, service station where they're making, you know, they're putting the mustard and the uh, ketchup and the hamburgers on. So it's, it's really a great example. Great yeah. example. Yeah. And, you know, pe people listening might say, well, you know, the, the lean uh, principles or lean philosophy would say, well, we shouldn't have a queue. But that is a reality of many um, service settings. And, and there are lessons I would encourage people to um, to, to learn about queuing theory and, and incorporate that. I mean, one, I think, very visible example of managing a queue, um, the fast food restaurants, uh, two of them that come to mind, um, Chick-fil-A and In-N-Out will both actually, instead of um, having the fixed distance between the ordering box and the window, when the queue is longer, they'll, they'll put people outside and they'll actually, you know, kind of do kind of a mobile ordering. I assume they're trying to match the, 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 the time, the flow time of how long it's going to take to prepare the food and how long it's going to take the vehicle to then get to the window. And they seem to manage that pretty dynamically. The other thing they might might be doing there is uh, there's a whole science of the waiting waiting lines, and active waiting is seems shorter than inactive waiting. So here the idea being that 
oh, I think that I'm getting served already. So the service encounter has started, becomes, uh, becomes important here. So I actually have a model for, for this. Well, uh, but, but, but sorry, before the model on that, so yeah. uh, there's this phrase that I love, balking the queue. Like if somebody has that interaction earlier on, they're probably more, they're probably less likely to balk the queue and give up if they've already ordered as opposed to waiting to order. So uh, that's, that's a, that seems like smart business too. That's exactly right. So uh, two, two things here. For, first, again, let's go back to lean and think of a manufacturing process with Kanban. So you have Kanban, so you have this inventory, which is essentially a queue. And I need that queue because I need that queue to buffer variability, whether it's setup time, whether it's a defect, whether it's, uh, well, I don't have, uh, you know, not every manufacturing process every time takes exactly the amount of time. So some are faster, some are slower. So I use this queue to keep my bottleneck fed. So yeah, so I need need that queue when I can't remove the variability completely. So so the model I have, it's called three E's. So three words that begin with E. There's elimination, enhancement, and managing expectations. So first thing I do is try to eliminate the variability. So can I schedule things? So uh, I can go to the barber shop where I don't know uh, how many people are coming and how many are going to be there. Or I could schedule an appointment, and presumably that'll reduce, reduce the queue. Uh, we could enhance the weight. So this, this is the idea of uh, somebody playing a piano in the bank for people who still go to banks. Or the classic story of uh, waiting for an elevator. Uh, so people are complaining about the weights for this elevator in an apartment building. It's going to cost a fortune to add another elevator. What do they do? They put a mirror in the <laughs> elevator lobby. Because <laughs> yeah. now all of a sudden, I'm, there's an occupied, one of the psychological rules is occupied time seems shorter than unoccupied mm-hmm. time. So I'm occupied, you know, fixing my shirt, my tie, looking at myself, yeah. you know, so, so, so it's there. Or I manage expectations. You know? So again, back to Disney World, and Disney is the, like the master of, of line management. Uh, there's always signs that say this is how much longer to the ride. Yeah. And they always overestimate what it is. Again, because the, the idea here is uh, expected weight is uh, seems shorter than unexpected weight. Mm-hmm. Explain weight. And, and uh, Disney actually, does a lot to try to entertain people during the wait. So back to your enhancement. That's exactly right. And and they, and they allow people to actual, actually schedule times on some of the rides, I believe, that there's some like premium ticketing. I haven't been to Disney in a long time. Yeah, so there's something called a fast pass where I can go and uh, schedule. Actually, you know, another great example, uh, this was, uh, I saw this first in uh, Harry Potter land, whereas, again, there, there you had little carts that you sat in, so it was like the Buzz Lightyear. You can choose to... Uh, go with your friends and ride. So three or four is sitting there. But when I do three, when I, if it holds four, but only three people arrive, I have all this empty capacity. So if I don't care who I'm sitting with, I can get in a shorter line and be a partner with those three, be the fourth person again to, I have this bottleneck called the ride. I have a long line. I'm, I'm having empty seats on the bottleneck. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. 
how can I fill that up? We'll fill that up by having these uh, 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 low uh, or having the customers who don't care who they sit with fill, yeah. fill that up. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious when you talk about people occupying themselves, whether it's a mirror or nowadays, almost everybody is carrying around a phone as a keep yourself occupied device. I'd be curious if there's research, of, you know, if people are less dissatisfied with cues because they're using that time to look at Facebook or to play a game or to do something. I, uh, I'd, be, I'd be curious. If I were still a, an active researcher, <laughs> it might be a project I'd work on. Yeah. Um, but then you have the, the dynamic of, let's say you're in the drive-through line at Starbucks and people are occupying themselves with their phone and they don't notice that the queue is advancing. <laughs> yep. That happens too. Um, so, well, speaking of cars, and, and I want to make sure I didn't forget asking about um, one of the other artifacts in your office, for those who are just listening to the podcast, won't see this. There's a vanity plate behind you. I'll, I'll let you explain, Re- read read the plate, and I'd love to hear the story behind it. Well, the, the plate says uh, Zero Muda, and actually, uh, my that's no longer in the car because I sold that car. The other car has one that says No Muda, <laughs> and so... Uh, my life is about zero muda or no muda, trying to get rid of as much waste as possible. So uh, we got those vanity plates. Now, my wife, when she hears me talk about uh, reduction of muda, and particularly uh, something like 5S, uh, when I taught 5S in uh, our MBA program, I often gave the students a project they had to go 5S something. And she says to me, Elliot, you know, you can talk about that all you want, but never show anybody our basement. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> it's one, one of these things, Mark, uh, you and I were talking about earlier uh, before the podcast, uh, the difference between knowing and doing. So, yeah. so I know I should 5S that, uh, that basement, <laughs> but doing it is something completely different. Yeah. Well, recently there was a, a, a big, long profile of, Larry Culp, who's now the CEO at, at GE, he had been at Danaher for a long time, great lean company. And in that profile, I, I blogged about it, um, really good article. Um, but in the article, he, he made reference to something about not doing lean at home. And like at some point, you've got to just draw the line. Now, I've heard sometimes people get in trouble where um, somebody in the family is trying to, quote unquote, 5S somebody else's domain. Right. So like in my home, I do a lot of the cooking. I do most of the cooking. Um, so if my wife were to come in and organize things, I, I, I would be it would be disorienting. And um, if somebody if your wife were to come and rearrange your desk there. And, and, and there are important lessons there about don't do this to somebody. Make sure you engage them and make sure the motivation is there. Elliot, if you don't have the motivation to five us your basement, so be it. No, but you you uh, bring up a good good point here, uh, Mark, and indeed it it kind of mirrors my career uh, as I reflect back on it. I started out as a numbers guy. I was a mathematical model, do big mathematical program, queuing models, uh, scheduling models, and, and as you you said, uh, my degree was operations research. As I evolved, I now do operations management, not. Uh, industrial engineering theory stuff. And what we like to say, or what I like to say is it's the people stupid. Mm-hmm. It's not the stupid people. It's yeah. the people stupid. Right. And what counts is, is how I, uh, how I apply this, how I implement it. It's all about change management. Mm-hmm. 
you know this as well as anybody. It's not the best model. In fact, go go back to Larry Culp there. I, I quote him a lot, and I quote him incorrectly. He, he either said, lean is uh, common sense vigorously applied, or he said, lean is common sense rigorously applied. So I say lean is common sense vigorously and rigorously applied. But uh, a colleague of mine, a fellow by the name Austin English, has told me, uh, he gives me a quote from Mark Twain. And he says, uh, Mark Twain said, common sense ain't common until someone points it out. <laughs> right. So it, it, all, it, all, it all goes back to, you know, uh, there's leadership and I guess there's a, something called followership. But how do I get people engaged in this? Because otherwise I'm doing something to them. So uh, as opposed to them doing it for themselves, you know, you're, you're a consultant. You, you, your biggest job is asking the right questions so that people can figure things out for themselves rather than you tell that to them. At the Darden School, we do the case method, the Socratic method. It's the same thing. I have to figure out the questions to ask so that they can discover something that's meaningful to them. Yeah. Well, and I think that's also increasingly the leadership style in organizations of, of, of leaders not coming in and having the answers, but asking questions, listening, facilitating, guiding. Um, it's, it's, that's a different approach, not just for those of us who are outside consultants. So, so Mark, uh, let me ask you a question here, because the, the hardest okay. thing for me <laughs> is when I, quote unquote, know the answer. Uh-huh. And I really just want to tell somebody the answer. <laughs> And yeah. no, but I, I got to pull back and pull back and say, no, I can't. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you do in that situation? Uh, it's, it's tough. Um, you got, you know, get better at controlling the impulse um, to, to blurt out the answer or like, I, you know, I've had opportunity. Well, you know, I would say I started my career very much as uh, a numbers guy Um I think, you know, my, my interest in people and business led me to industrial engineering as opposed to um, other, other branches of engineering. But um, I, in working in healthcare, I've had opportunity to, to um, be exposed to ideas that come from counseling and psychology. And mm-hmm. I've interviewed some people, some experts about this on the podcast. There's a, a field of counseling, a, a style of counseling called motivational interviewing. And the one thing they teach in that approach is as, as a counselor, as a coach, as a parent or whatever, you have to stifle what they call the writing reflex, you know, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we were to ever feel bad or beat ourselves up for that, I, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves it is very much a human nature reflex to try to be helpful. And, and one way to be helpful is to tell someone. I'm going to just tell you, it'll be easier if I just tell you, it'll be safer if I just tell you. Um, and, and, and that stifles development. And yeah, so you just have to try to kind of try to fight that urge and remind yourself, ask questions. So, so some stories there. So I have one son who's now uh, in a master's program in uh, couples counseling, so a psychological thing. And we'll often get together as a family. And he'll start asking questions, and it's like, I feel like I'm being analyzed. <laughs> I really don't like it. And then my daughter, who's uh, I said was the industrial engineer, does this stuff for a living. Uh, we did a take your dad to work one day. So she she works in healthcare, 
and we went around and so we're talking with the head of surgery, the head of the ER, talking talk about their problems. At the end of the day, day, she says to me, you know, dad, you're not supposed to tell them the answers because <laughs> I was in full academic mode uh, trying to yeah. show how much, how smart I was uh, and saying, mm-hmm. well, did you ever think about this? Did you ever think about uh-huh. this? Or, you know, this is what you ought to be doing here. And she said, that, that, that's not what we do. We're, we're coaching them. And it's like, oh, geez. And she was so right. And, uh, but uh, it's hard for me to do. It's, it, it is hard. Sometimes the coach needs a coach to, to point out, hey, keep me honest about this. Or, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask one other question is kind of reflecting on, on your career and being driven to try to eliminate waste. I mean, did, did you find ways to apply lean principles either to your teaching or to research methods? Um, like, you know, the, thinking of the work you do as a professor. So uh, the answer is yes. The thing that both uh, I and all my colleagues hate the most is grading. Mm. The grading is just, you know, it, it's one of these things where, geez, it seemed it would almost be Pareto optimal. I hate grading. My students <laughs> hate getting grades. Why do we do it? But it, it must add value for somewhere, someone. Uh, yeah, who's the customer uh, of the grade point average? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I might have a, a semester where I'm teaching two sections of, uh, well, I just, my very last one I was teaching two sections of our EMBA program, 75 people each. So 150 gra- exams to grade and I have two weeks to grade them. So I get this big batch of stuff. So the question is, how can I lean that out? And what I found, what I could do is I, also go for single piece flow there. Mm-hmm. So single piece flow, meaning as the exams came in, I would grade them. So I uh, didn't, don't have to do 150 at once. Now it turns out that uh, a third of them come in the last day anyway, because the, the it's not like they're sitting with a blue book and all doing it at the same time. So I still have that big batch, but it makes it much, much more palatable for me. The other thing I did Mark was I had a Kanban board for all my projects. So each day, uh, and the Kanban board was uh, something like uh, had five or six different sections. One section was uh, ideas. So these are things I wanted to work work on. And then I had something called doing stage one, doing stage two, waiting for response and finished. So as I would work on projects, the little cards would move along and I could see where I was working or what I was working on, what needed to be done. I wouldn't start a new project until an old project was finished. So I didn't want, you know, the whole idea of Kanban behind the board is give me a visual representation and limit the amount of work in process. So that would help me limit the work in process. The other thing it did was it enabled me to go to co-authors, for example, and say, hey, this is overdue. You promised me this uh, January 10th. Here it is January 14th. Where is it? So uh, that was empowering for me. And what what I if I did it well, every morning I would go in and have a three-minute stand-up meeting with myself. Mm-hmm. Kind of look at the board. Yeah. What am I going to work on today? What's the... Uh, what are the due dates? What's the important 
important stuff. So it helped me prioritize things. Yeah. Well, there are opportunities for improvement uh, in any any setting. And, and, and so that brings me finally to, uh, well, not the final thing we'll talk about, but finally, uh, the, the, the one thing that we originally intended uh, to talk about is more from the realm of sports and Steph Curry from the Golden State Warriors. Um, I had read, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes, um, maybe some of our morning reading routines are similar, but um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about how Steph Curry was trying to perfect his shot. And then um, Elliot had written about this and um, sent me a link um, to what he wrote. And I thought, hey, let's let's talk about that and other things in a podcast. So we've, we've had a lot of the other things um, talk. But do, do, so what, what um, Elliot wrote is what business can learn from Steph Curry. And then there's a subheading, um, not far into it, continuous improvement and the perfect swish. Can, can I ask you to kind of touch on some of the key points of um, how Steph Curry is working to improve his shooting. Sure. Sure. So yeah, uh, Mark, we both read that same article, which is what uh, motivated uh, my piece and uh, you're uh, reading your stuff. Uh, well, I see your book measures for success in the back there. You know, we talk a lot about not reacting to noise and looking for uh, assignable causes and, looking at uh, both accuracy and precision. And as I read uh, the original article, I said, this is exactly what Steph Curry is doing. So the quote that I think he has in that article is he wants to swish the swish. So this, again, for the technical people in the audience, it goes way back to Taguchi and Taguchi's loss function way back when. The idea here is it's more than just good or bad. There's degrees of goodness and degrees of badness. So I could be within spec and get my three points, which is what uh, Curry's doing for, uh, aiming for, but I could be off center. And what Curry is trying to do is say, no, I want to be precise and accurate, get it right in the middle every single time. So uh, we, we talk about action uh, based on data, facts, and analysis. So given the, the science, current science uh, data collection, what they can do with him is when he's practicing, he gets a, there's a speaker that goes on that tells him how far off center he is. So he can adjust his shot to get more and more uh, centered, get more and more consistent. And the, the word we, we use is get, make his process more robust. So by robust, if he's tight and in the center, if he's off one way or the other, he may be what we would call out of control in a data sense, but he's not out of spec. So his capability, process capability is really high, going back to our Six Sigma training and things like that. So really what he's discovered that he doesn't know is he's discovered is Six Sigma analysis. And again, this idea, boy, I, the the more robust my process, again, meaning that uh, the more, uh, even in the, uh, even when there's lots of variability around, whether now a field goal kicker would be different. We would worry about a gust of wind or rain or something like that. He's indoors, but maybe the air conditioner is blowing one way, or he talks in the article about being tired at the end of the game or the fan noise distracting him. So what he wants is, even if that affects his shot, uh, 
uh, it still still goes in at high percentage yeah. of the time. If, if his natural shot, yeah, if his natural shot has a tighter variation around center, then he's more robust to some of those effects. That's um, correct. You mentioned field goal kickers, um, and and when thinking first of you know a basketball shot. Um, you know, a shot that's off center can still go in, but I imagine there's a function of um, the likelihood of being good decreases as you get off center. You're more likely to hit the rim and not get a good bounce or what have you. But like with field goal kickers, I've used the goalpost as a way of illustrating the Taguchi loss function because, you know, in American football, of course, um, anything that's inside those goalposts is equally worth three points on a field goal. Um, it would be a different game if you had now with technology, you could have you know sort of laser lines and you could award four points for a field goal that was very close to center, which would change the game and change the approach. But uh, it seems like there might be opportunity, a similar thing for kickers looking at you know, their, their motion is a, a repeatable process and can they reduce the variation in their motion, which would then translate into less variation in either the placement of the football or the placement of the basketball. It seems like there's all kinds of opportunities there. Well, I think uh, when you, in football, from what I understand, the, uh, there's uh, also, there's more variability there because you have three people involved. You have the person who's hiking the ball person who's holding the ball and then the kicker the quote-unquote six sigma snappers long snappers will have the same number of rotations <laughs> each time and have the, the the laces in exactly the right place consistently yeah yeah so again you know we, we talk about standard work so mm-hmm. what's the standard work that can, can produce that now, when i read the curry article though i worry and it goes back to your measures of success mm-hmm. Is he overreacting sometimes mm. to what's just general noise? So, you know, he has a release angle and he'll have a, a amount of force. So go, go back. I'm sure you've done the statapult exercise or the export exercise. Yeah, or Deming would, would do the, the funnel exercise. So again, here, mm-hmm. there's some there's there's going to be some inherent variability, and he gets this sound in the back, minus two plus two off. Yeah. Some of that he shouldn't react to. Right. Because right. there was no assignable cause. So the question is, is he actually adding variability by doing that reaction? Well, Deming's lessons from the funnel experiment would say, yes, if, you know, he say if, if the feedback is like minus two to the left, and then he immediately reacts two to the right, that increases the variation of dropping uh, marbles from a funnel. Um, or the statapult or whatever thing you might use. I mean, I think back to my days of manufacturing, we would have specifications for engine parts. You know, the size, for example, the diameter of a cylinder bore in the engine block. Well, there was a spec, no smaller than this, no bigger than that. But then there was also a nominal center. And one of the biggest challenges and biggest fights with management is, you know, we would have um, engineers and frontline workers doing statistical process control on the center, like trying to swish the center of the basket, the center of the spec, and something would drift out of control, which was a sign of the process now is maybe on its way to becoming out of spec, 
And management, top management at the plant would say, no, don't stop the line. It's still in spec. Those parts are good, ignoring the idea that they're not equally good. And you know, what, what's the, 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 the quote unquote tolerance stack up of these different parts? And you think, well, no wonder we were trying to catch up to some of the Japanese competitors that would have had much more focus on not just being in spec, but taking the Steph Curry view of being in the middle and not constantly adjusting the machine of like, oh, this one was, you know, 47 microns bigger than the center line of the spec. That didn't mean adjust it by 47 microns. At some point to your point, Elliot, yeah, just let the thing run if it's in control and the process capability is good enough. So, so for me, uh, again, going back to my teaching at a two by two matrix, uh, in control, out of control, in spec, out of spec. Uh Uh So what you just described is something that is out of control, but in spec. Uh And the question is, what do you do with that? I I always call that living dangerously. Yeah. So it says I'm making good stuff, but I really don't understand this process. I got to be careful about it. And were we defining quality as, well, it passed the gauge, meaning it was good and it could move on versus what's the impact to the customer in the life and the use of that engine and their, in this case, it was Cadillacs, right? So this was supposed to be a premium engine and um, they, they weren't all perfect out in the field. And I think some of that was certainly due to living dangerously, as you call it. Yep. Um, now, now, the other, other thing, of course, with Curry is I uh, use that as an example of uh, customer requirements change over time. So here you have Curry, who's at the top of his game, and uh, he's worried about the game changing, so he has to become even better. But one of my students pointed out when uh, he read that article was, in fact, Curry changed the game. Yeah. So he was the one who who made the who raised the bar, so to speak. So the other people have to follow him, and he knows how to do this. And other people are going to have to learn how to do that if they want to compete. Well, and, and when we talk about, you know, being, um, you know, mathematically minded people, I mean, you know, analytics and what's been learned uh, in, in recent years, the idea overgeneralizing a little bit, but um, the idea of the only shots you really ever want to take in a basketball game are a three point shot or a layup or a dunk. Because the expected value of those shots is so much higher than the shots in between. That's exactly right. Now, uh, John Thompson, uh, may he rest in peace, the former coach of Georgetown, complained vehemently about that, at least when the three-point shot first came out. It's almost like your laser example for the kicker. He, he argued you should get more points for a closer in shot because those are harder to get than somebody chucking it out from the outside. Oh, I mean, meaning like a shot that's more contested. Yeah, more contested. Yeah, hmm. not you know, a higher probability of making it once I get it, but harder to work it inside to to do that. Yeah, and it's you're, it's interesting when you talk about how the game has changed and the expectations of players. I just pulled up some stats. Uh, he's 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 never played in Philly, but uh, uh, Brooke Lopez from the NBA, uh-huh. seven feet. I think he's probably seven. What, what is he? He's seven feet tall. So as a center, the expectations, the voice of the customer. His first eight years in the league, he rarely ever took a three-point shot, like zero per game or 0.1 per game. And then suddenly in the 2016-2017 season, he started taking five three-point shots a game. 
he had to evolve his game and he actually makes them at a, you know, probably typically league average percentage, but um, yeah, there's all kinds of lessons there related to our work and our career of uh, you've got to make sure you evolve or otherwise end up irrelevant. There are some uh, tall centers in the NBA who never play anymore because they can't shoot threes. Well, think of, uh, again, you know, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to uh, our, uh, our uh, ersatz guard or former guard, Ben Simmons, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who never learned how to take a shot, you know? Yeah. It, it, yeah. And that that's for somebody who has so many talents and, was drafted so high and uh, is paid so much. It's almost a mental block, it seems. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, we, and, um, but I think there's a lot to be learned from, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the analytics or the continuous improvement or the leadership aspects of sports um, and, and think about applications back to our workplace. I mean, this, you, you've written other articles seems like there's a shared interest here in, in, in trying to extract what, what lessons or interesting points are there from the sports world. Is there anything else that, that comes to mind from recent years related to operations or lean? Sports, uh, not off the top of my mind, you know, other than uh, going back to what we talked about before and uh, the leadership that's involved. So, uh, you know, basketball, particularly being a team sport, getting kind of these five guys to work together. Although at the end of the game, it seems like you want that one person who can take the ball to the, to the basket and score. Yeah. Um, so one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, maybe we can do another episode at some point, not to take advantage of your retirement, um, <laughs> hopefully increase time availability, but um, maybe, maybe you'll be open to that at some point. But speaking of retirement and speaking of beginning of the year, this is a time when people, organizations are often reflecting about the previous year, they're planning ahead. And one thing that, that you teach um, is uh, you know, Hoshan Conry or strategy deployment, um, whatever words we want to use. Um, I, when, when we chatted before the recording, you mentioned that you apply these concepts to, to looking in, in, into your retirement. Can, can you tell us about that? Sure. So, uh, you know, our mutual friend, uh, Katie Anderson, talks about uh, your own person, personal Hoshin Connery. So I, I took her uh, seminar actually after I retired and I have no personal, I have no professional Hoshin Connery anymore. So the idea here is, could I apply this to my retirement? And the answer was a resounding yes. So the whole idea here is cascading some overarching goal eventually down to some daily actions. So, so uh, I've uh, categorized my goals in uh, three, maybe four categories. I talk about mind, body, and soul. So uh, I want activities that keep my mind fresh. So I thank you, Mark, for bringing me here today because this these are the kind of conversations that, that does that for me. It has to be good questions and uh, talking about that. Body, so I'm working, uh, try to do some exercises, stay healthy. And soul, you know, for the heart, you know, uh-huh. it's more than just me, part of a larger community. And then there's fun. You know, I want to have fun too. You know, that's kind of boring. I'm going to do a strategy or policy deployment <laughs> on my life. And, you know, what a geek thing to do. But no, but, you know, maybe I have fun doing that. So 
what I try to do is given those long-term goals of developing mind, body, and soul while having fun, can I roll those back into monthly or daily activities? Try to make sure every day have I exercised, every day have I done something to uh, expand, expand my mind? What am I doing to make sure that uh, I realize I'm part of a, a larger purpose in life? So that there's the soul. So I've, uh, I've been trying to do some personal training. I've been reading more. I've actually been taking some religious study classes online. To, uh-huh. It's actually been one of the benefits of COVID. You know, uh, yeah. Shame yeah. we had to go through all this, but the, right. the fact that all these courses now I can take from the privacy of my own little office here has just been uh-huh. wonderful. So yeah. That's been a great thing for me to do. So yeah. again, it go, goes back to me and, and some of the questions you've asked. You know, if I really believe in this lean stuff, if I really believe in continuous improvement, I ought to, ought to be able to apply it in my own personal life. So that's uh, that's what I'm always looking to do, yeah. except for cleaning up my basement. I was just going to say, but yeah, I was going to bring it back to that. I mean, there, there may very well be more benefit to you personally from that strategy deployment Hoshim Conry approach than... Uh, the basement, unless cleaning up the basement is one of those things that, I mean, does that help with body or your, you know, moving stuff, carrying stuff, maybe throwing some things away or maybe mind and soul when it comes to relations with your wife and her being happy with you or not. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think you raise, you raise a really important point there of, um, uh, not just having goals, right? Because a lot of people start the year with this resolution that may be focused on a goal without then connecting it to the practical actions. So if somebody may have a resolution that says, uh, I'm going to lose some weight. Okay, well, that's that's just a goal. Maybe better for somebody to say, I'm going to exercise daily and then connect it to, well, the reason why, because then when you, you don't feel like doing it on a certain day, when you can connect back to the purpose, I think that helps in terms of motivation and in following through. So I think, you know, goals and actions. And like you said, having that, that tight connection can be really helpful. And then, then of course it's easier for me as an individual, because I don't have to balance other, for the most part, uh, other people's goals and objectives and you know, re- resource allocation is a lot easier for one person than multiple people. You know, and again, I'm not imposing this on anybody else. Or having now, to are, negotiate are you, with different divisions of the organization. <laughs> so I was going to ask, are you, are you getting input from your wife as a key stakeholder to your mind, body, and soul success? We're a, we're a partnership, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we work on this together. We, we share the personal trainer. Yeah. And uh, she certainly encourages me to do the exercise. And uh, the more I do with uh, body and soul, the less I'm in her hair. So we're, it becomes, (laughs) becomes a positive as well. Yeah. Um, Well, this has been a lot of fun and I I see the book behind you and it was my defect in my process. I did mean to mention um, your book up front during uh, the introductions, um, a, a book of, uh, really, really, um, you know, interesting and very, very readable case studies and scenarios related, um, to lean. Maybe one thing we could touch on briefly here. And again, I would encourage people to go check out the book, the lean, uh, anthology, 
Um, there, there was a chapter when I was looking at the table of contents that I, I really uh, took interest in. Earlier, you mentioned um, statistical process control, not overreacting to noise. There's a chapter there um, about an individual using SPC charts, or you use the terminology I like, process behavior charts that comes from Don Wheeler. Um, when, when it comes to monitoring blood sugar and, and managing diabetes, um, you know, could, could, you, could you sort of share just a couple of perspectives on the application of a, you know, a technical method like this or a, a management method and, and how that could be applied to someone's um, health measures and health outcomes. Sure, Mark. So, so again, here the idea is uh, with uh, within any any process, within every process, there's variability, and there is uh, standard variability, regular variability, and then there's assignable causes. What I don't want to do is overreact to this normal variability, the variability that just happens. So the fellow in this chapter was measuring his blood sugar. Blood sugars can go up and down throughout the day, depending on certain things. And as long as it's within these uh, uh, control limits, uh, in the process behavior chart, we call them control limits as well, right? But they're based, as opposed to statistical process control where we're taking a sample, we're looking at a run chart of these. As long as we're in those limits, it's okay. And you're only going to react when there's some special cause. Now, if our friend, and I think his name in the chapter was Tracy Scott, if he's managing his blood sugar and his doctor has given him a certain range that's good or bad, so it goes back to our Taguchi, what's the spec limit, the spec limits, it's okay for this variability to be out of control if we're in the spec limits, because then I have a really nice tight, uh, tight uh, distribution. But when I go out of control now, hey, what happened? And his game that he played was how do I, he made it a, almost like a video game. How, what do I do in my diet and my lifestyle with exercise to, to narrow this variability? So he was, uh, turned out to be successful. And then the other way he used the data set was as he changed his diet, he actually noticed that the variability went down. So, hey, there were enough data points that indicated that, hey, this was a process change that, that uh, created a statistically significant output change, and it was for the good. So then he's going to change his control limits. He's going to be even tighter. And now, uh, what do we say? Quality is the... Uh, only race you lose by finishing. So he's going to keep going and try to get it tighter and tighter. But he's also the other, my other sign behind me says, don't let perfect get in the way of better. Yeah. So it's okay for there to be some variability there. There has to be a, I can't expect exactly the same right. blood sugar level. But as we spoke about earlier, Mark, now the question is, how do I get the diabetic to believe this and want to do this? Mm-hmm. So it, it, it becomes a people change process, not, yeah. uh, not a continuous glucose monitoring uh, problem. Back to, again, as you put it, the, the knowing doing gap. Yep. Whether it's me flossing my teeth, that was the thing we talked about before we hit recording. I know I'm supposed to floss my teeth every day, but I sometimes fall short of that goal. And uh, I go to the dentist and, and they reiterate the knowledge when it's more a question of... Um, motivation and change. 
Um, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, uh, fitness goals or health or uh, weight, I mean, one lesson I've tried to take from uh, process behavior charts and SPC is that your weight, even if, even if you're at a point where you want your weight to be stable, it's not going to be the exact same number every day, especially if your scale measures tenths of a pound. So there are some, uh, you'll read, uh, people will read advice sometimes from um, wellness experts who will say, uh, to avoid overreacting, only weigh yourself once a week. I'm like, well, okay, that would be one strategy. Or you could weigh yourself every morning and just learn how to not overreact. I'm four tenths of a pound heavier than I was yesterday. Not a big deal. I may be 0.7 pounds lighter tomorrow. This happens. And everybody's body's system is going to have its own variation based on, uh, it depends on lifestyle and, and other things too. So, so Mark, for the next time we get together, uh, I have a case study on uh, using A3 analysis for weight loss. Ah. So, uh, and it talks about, about some of these things. And again, looking at me, there's, there's obviously a difference between knowing and doing. <laughs> it, it, as, as people tend to say in, in this space, and it becomes cliche, it's a journey, right? Yes. So good luck to you, Elliot, on your journey this year and, um, and beyond. And, 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 you know, you, you've done, uh, we, we, there's, let, let's brainstorm at some point. I mean, I'm sure we could do an entire episode at some point talking about some of your work and experience in healthcare. Um, Elliot is also the, the author of a chapter from a book called Lean Tools for Service Business Model Innovation in Healthcare. Um, between that and other healthcare experiences, um, I know we could find a lot more to talk about. Maybe a little bit on sports too. That'd be great. I'd love to do it, Mark. <laughs> um, so again, our guest today has been um, Elliot Weiss. Um, you can find uh, his uh, bio page and CV and all of that detail. If you go to elliotweiss.com, that forwards to the page on uh, the Darden website. And again, uh, I, I do recommend go check out the book, um, The Lean Anthology. It was co-authored by you, and I don't have your co-author's name handy. Rebecca Goldberg. Okay, so I'll make sure we give um, credit to her. So Elliot Weiss, Rebecca Goldberg. Um, Elliot, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for uh, Thank you for being a guest today. Well, thank you for having me. It uh, was fun for me as well. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.